The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1968, Episode 3, April through June. Motorcars and the bars, bicycles for two, broken-hearted jubilee. Whose idea was Apple? I don't know. It was sort of around, I think, before Brian died. I think actually the idea for Apple was the accountant's idea. You must diversify. John Lennon. Clive Epstein or some other such business freak came up to us and said, you've got to spend so much money or the tax will take it. We're thinking of opening some retail uh, wasn't record shop, it was a chain of retail clothes or some balmy thing like that. 
And we were all muttering about, well, if we're going to have to open a shop, let's open something we're interested in. You know, and we went through all these different ideas about this, that and the other, and we ended up with the... Paul had a nice idea about opening up a, a white house where it would sell white china and things like that, everything white, you know, because you can never get anything white, you know, which is pretty groovy. And that, it didn't end up with that. It ended up with Apple with all this junk and the fool and all this stupid clothes and all that. I think maybe the idea for the name Apple came from Paul. Um, I think that it came from uh, Magritte. You know, the, the green apples that Magritte had in his paintings. And I think um, Robert Fraser took Paul to, uh, or Paul went with Robert Fraser to Belgium and bought a couple of Magritte's, you know, and saw those green apples, things that he did. And uh, I think that's where Paul got the idea from, to call the company Apple. Paul McCartney. The big theory was that we put all our affairs into sort of one bundle. We'd have it as our own company, Apple. would be a record label, all the things we'd ever wanted to do. Alistair Taylor remembers the beginnings of Apple. Let me tell you something now. One Sunday, we were sitting in Hill, Hilly House, was it? Yes, Brian's private office, having a, a Apple meeting. The boys and myself and Neil. And they just picked up the phone there and then on a Sunday morning and said, hey, let's get hold of Derek. And they rang Derek Taylor in Los Angeles when he was with the Beach Boys and said, pack your bags, just come. And I said, well, what's, what's he going to do? You know, oh, fuck that, I don't know. We'll find something. They all rang from England when, one morning, morning my time. Derek Taylor. And said, we're starting this company, Apple, and uh, we want you to run it. And then, uh, well, George wants you to run it, really. Paul said, I've asked Peter Asher, and, and John said, I've asked Mal Evans, bollocks to you. And Ringo said, no one's asked me, but you can come anyway. So we went... We up to, went to live in um, Surrey, and I worked for Apple. Became Apple press officer again. <laughs> when Derek arrived, he said, OK, well, I, I'll set some kind of business up. And it was, there was talk about making it one of these dispatch rider express delivery things. This literally happened. And then it came up, who were going to have to run publishing? So Derek said, hey, there's this marvellous guy. In it, but get him on the phone. Get him here. And they were just pulling people in and saying, oh, well, well, Shit, what are we going to do with them? Oh, it doesn't matter. We'll think of something, you know. So is it any wonder money was flying out? April's launching of the new Apple Corps held high hopes. This is London, the home of Apple. The Apple concept is to bring together the artists of today with the methods and media of tomorrow. To do this, Apple has entered into many diverse fields of communication. Films, television, and of course records are all part They were trying to uh, open up horizons for, for people, oh, for want of a better word, the more artistic, in other words, they were handing out. 20 or 30 pounds or a couple of hundred pounds for somebody that wanted to rent a room and put a poetry reading on or sculpturing and things like that. They were trying to AP, they were trying to be like the Arts Council of Great Britain for, for the pop world. But of course they got taken for a ride the way everybody else always does when they open uh, when they open their purses and their wallets to other people. Ringo Starr. 
you know, the sole purpose of Apple was not to... People didn't have to beg anymore. Artists, they had a valid idea. We would front them. And, you know, we had a publishing company, a record company, and we, would, we could use that in these companies. But, you know, we should have had a big sign, you don't have to beg. On April 20th, 1968, Apple advertises in the New Music Express that they want to help unknown songwriters and musicians. Paul says it's ridiculous that people with talent like Dave Mason and Denny Lane have sometimes had to struggle to get their work accepted. There are some people who, are, who want to do something specially where they need a bit of money. See, obviously, like if we're running a, a thing which involves money, you can't just give all the time because you have to get something back or else it just stops you know when your money runs out so that we're trying we're trying to do it with people that can do something for us in return like on a swap basis here's neil aspinall well what we did you see we did this mad thing of like maybe put an ad in the paper or something saying send us your tapes and they will not be shown straight into the waste paper basket you know we will answer and we just got inundated with tapes and poetry and scripts and phew. and in actual fact i don't really think we got any bands or any artists by that method we never really got much from the send-in tapes but because people knew we were interested we got we, for instance peter asher brought along james taylor apple press officer derek taylor yes well, I, the, when i got actually started at apple in april 68 james taylor was already there he was in the office with uh, Paul and Peter Asher. Just a knocking around the zoo on a Thursday afternoon. There's bars on all the windows and they're counting up the spoon bait. And if I'm feeling edgy, it's a chick who's paid to be my slave. Yeah, oh, watch out, James. But she'll hit me with a needle She thinks I'm trying to misbehave Now the keeper's trying to cool me Says I'm bound to be alright But I know that he can't fool me Cause I'm putting him up tight, yeah And I can feel him getting edgy Every time I make a sudden move Whoa, whoa, yes it's true can hear him celebrating every time up and leave the room. Said my friends all come see me. They point at me and stare. Said he's just like the rest of us. So what's he doing there? Cause I'm certain about one thing, babe That zoo's no place to spend the night, no, no
bars on all the windows and the counting up the spoons, babe. And if I'm feeling edgy, there's a chikoo's paid to be my slave. Yeah, watch out, cooch. But you hit me with a needle that you think so trying to misbehave, yeah. Ron Cass, divisional head of Apple until August 1968, introduced the modern jazz quartet to the label to give some class and diversification to a strictly pop stable.
On May 5th, the fashion model Twiggy sees Mary Hopkin on the BBC TV program Opportunity Knocks and tells Paul about her. He phones Mary Hopkin and suggests she records for Apple. Mary Hopkin was the main thing, you know, right? Uh, I didn't really bring her, but uh, she was on a talent show. Mary Hopkins came from the uh, Huey Green, you know, whatever his show was called. Opportunity Knocks. This is Mary Hopkin, and this is Alex. Hello, I'm Alexis uh, from Apple Electronics. Uh, I would like to say hello to all my brothers around the world, and uh, to all the girls around the world, and to all the electronic people around the world. Uh, and uh, that is Apple Electronics. As I say, John wanted to do stuff like Zapple. He wanted a sort of funky label that he could do crazy stuff on. So that became his area, which was quite nice. It might have been exciting for everybody else and for people that came in from the outside. For me, it was um, a lot of hard work setting it up and uh, a lot of chaos. I was still in India when it started. George Harrison recalls. I think it was basically um, John and Paul's uh, madness, uh, ego, running away with themselves or with each other. On May 1st, 1968, Cynthia Lennon returned home from her holiday in Greece, where she rested and reflected on John's comments regarding his infidelity. Here Cynthia recalls her return. On the way home, our plane stopped off in Rome, where we had lunch. Wouldn't it be fun to finish the day with dinner in London, after breakfast in Greece and lunch in Rome? Let's get John to join us. Alex suggested I ring him to let him know what time we would be back. I spoke to him briefly. Hi, darling, I'll be home soon. I can't wait to see you. John's reply sounded normal. Fine. See you later. Donovan and Gypsy headed home, but Jenny and Alex came with me to Kenwood to see if John fancied dinner out. We arrived at four in the afternoon, and immediately I knew something was wrong. The porch light was on. The curtains were still drawn, and everything was silent. There was no dot to greet me, no Julian bounding through the door shouting with delight for a hug. What was going on? The front door was unlocked. The three of us walked in and began to look for John, Julian and Dot. Where are you all? I called, still expecting them to appear from behind a door laughing at the joke. As I put my hand on the sunroom door, I felt a sudden frisson of fear. I hesitated for a second then opened it. Inside, the curtains were closed and the room was dimly lit, so it took me a moment to focus. When I did, I froze. She walked into the kitchen, pushed open the door, and there was John in his bathrobe, 
having a cup of tea with Yoko Ono, who was in Cynthia's bathrobe. I think he wanted her to say, you know, how dare you, um, don't you love me, and get in a fight, do something, you know. But Cynthia is, is such a lady, and she's so placid, and she's so even-tempered. John and Yoko were sitting on the floor, cross-legged and facing each other beside a table covered with dirty dishes. They were wearing the terry cloth robes we kept in the pool house, so I imagined they had been for a swim. John was facing me. He looked at me, expressionless, and said, Oh, hi. Yoko didn't turn around. I blurted out the only thing I could think of. We were all looking forward to dinner in London after lunch in Rome and breakfast in Greece. Would you like to come? The stupidity of that question has haunted me ever since. Confronted by my husband and his lover, wearing my dressing gown, behaving as though I was an intruder, all I could do was carry on as if everything were normal. In fact, I was in shock. As I stood in the doorway, John said, indifferently, No, thanks. I turned and fled. She tried to pretend like it wasn't happening. And I think that's one of the things that just pushed John's buttons unbelievably. Anything, he couldn't do anything to make her mad. I threw a few things into a bag and ran downstairs again. Barely twenty minutes after I had arrived for what I had hoped would be a loving reunion with John, I got back into the waiting taxi with Jenny and Alex and drove away from my home, leaving John and his lover behind. I was in a daze. My mind seemed to be floating, and I couldn't focus on anything other than the vivid image of them together. I had no memory of the journey with Alex and Jenny, or of arriving that evening at the small house they shared. All I remember was that Jenny went to her room as soon as we arrived. She was shocked and embarrassed. Sin, I'm so sorry, but I've got to go to bed. All this has been too much for me. I'll see you tomorrow. Will you be okay? I was left in the tiny sitting room where bean bags and ethnic cushions were scattered all over the floor, and the curtains were drawn. I collapsed onto the sofa in front of the fireplace, rousing myself only to phone Dot and ask her to look after Julian for a couple more days. Alex moved around the room, lighting candles. I think you need a drink, Sin. Then brought out a bottle of red wine and two glasses. Hello, I'm Alexis. I was grateful for something that might help to numb the pain, and knocked back several glasses. Then Alex produced a second bottle, and we drank that too. I was exhausted and sank rapidly into a groggy state. Alex had been chatting away, and I was hardly registering what he was saying, until I was shocked into awareness. Do you know, Sin, he said, I've always loved you. This is perfect. How much money do you have? Why don't you and I run away together? We could have a great life. That would show John and Yoko. I answered without thinking that I had a mere thousand pounds in the bank. No riches, no fortune, nothing. Alex was John's friend. What was he talking about? It must be some kind of joke. I needed the bathroom. When I got there, I was violently sick. I lurched out of the bathroom on wobbly legs and saw through an open door on the landing, a bedroom. I went in, collapsed on the bed, fully clothed, pulled the covers over me and passed out. Later that night, as distraught as she was, she slept with one of John's close friends, Magic Alex. Sometime later, Alex crept into the bed and was attempting to kiss me, whispering, I'm Alexis that we should be together. I pushed him away, sickened. The next morning I woke with a hangover and the dreadful realisation that my marriage was probably over. I had no idea what to do next. After a couple of days, I knew I had to go home, packed up my things and took a taxi home.
Walking in was difficult. I had no idea what I might find. But the house was astonishingly normal. The sun shone, the curtains were drawn back, and everything was neat as a pin. As I stood wondering who was at home, Julian ran to me and leapt into my arms. At that moment, John wandered out of the den. Oh, hi, he said casually. Where have you been? I stared at him. Surely he was joking. But no, he seemed relaxed, normal, even pleased to see me. He came over and planted a kiss on my cheek. Had it all been a nightmare? Or was John truly capable of doing something like that, then dismissing it as unimportant? It was evening before John and I had a chance to talk. I had to steel myself for the confrontation we would usually avoid to ask him what was happening with Yoko. Oh, her, he said, as if surprised that I'd asked. Nothing. It's not important. We have to talk, John, I told him. Please don't pretend that nothing's happening. Eventually we did talk, perhaps more honestly and in more depth than we had since our student days. Our love for each other, our hopes and dreams... John talked again about his other women and insisted that Yoko was no more important than they had been. It's you I love, Sin, he said. I love you now more than I ever have before. That night we went to bed and made love, and my bruised heart felt lighter. It wouldn't be easy to forget what had happened, but if it really was in the past, well, I would try. For the next few days all seemed well. John was in a good mood. Julian was happy to have us around, and I was daring to hope that we had got through the worst. We agreed that we wanted to go forward together, despite our differences. But this brief, happy respite soon ended. John was due to go to the States with Paul on a business trip in connection with Apple. I suggested that I go with him. It seemed to me that if we were going to remain close, we should spend more time together. And a trip to New York would be fun. John's answer was a flat no. He refused to look at me or discuss it. Over the next few days he was irritable and withdrawn, and I felt a rising sense of panic because I couldn't reach him. I didn't want to be left alone in the house, waiting and wondering while he was away, so I asked him if he would mind me taking my mother and Julian to Italy for two weeks. Yeah, sure, he replied. Going away seemed like the best thing to do. In Italy there would be the warmth, kindness and company I needed. By this time, Mum had left her house in Isha and moved into Ringo's flat in Montague Square, just off Baker Street, which we had rented from him for her. And so, around May 9th, 1968, Cynthia left for Italy. Half of what I say is meaningless But I say it just to reach you
On Saturday, May 11, 1968, John Lennon and Paul McCartney visit America to launch Apple and do various interviews to explain what Apple is all about to Americans. It's a company we're setting up which involves records, films, electronics which make records and films work. It's just trying to mix business with enjoyment. But like all the profits won't go into our pockets. They'll go to help people, but not like a charity. But well, we hope to make a thing that's free, where people can just come and do and record and not have to ask, could we have another microphone in the studio, because we haven't had a hit yet. It'll be big, I think. In the afternoon on Sunday, May the 12th, John and Paul hold an Apple business meeting aboard a Chinese junk, sailing around the Statue of Liberty. And on Monday, May 13th, at the St. Regis Hotel in New York City, they hold a press conference where Paul meets Linda Eastman again. The idea was we'd go to America and we'd say... Apple is starting, you know, send us your huddled talent, you know, and we are, we were interested in there. So we wanted a nice big launch. Why are you here today? To do this. What is this? What does it look like? <laughs> what? Well, you know, what are you doing here? It's a business concerning records, films, and electronics. And as a sideline, whatever it's called, manufacturing or whatever. But we want to set up a system whereby people who just want to make a film about anything don't have to go on their knees in somebody's office, probably yours. I had sort of a strange feeling. I, I was very nervous. I had like a sort of real sort of personal paranoia on me. I don't know if it was what I was smoking at the time, but it was very strange that for me. And I remember sitting up there and being interviewed. And John was doing great, and he had a bus driver or prefect badge he was wearing. They said, what's that mean? Mr. Lennon, can you tell us what it is you're wearing, that button and those... Uh... Well, it's just a white button. <laughs> and that's bus prefect. 
And that's what? Bus prefect. Bus prefect. In charge of the bus. Do you plan on opening an Apple clothing store in the United States chain? No plans, I know of. Would you say that Magical Mystery Tour is a better or worse album than Sgt. Pepper? It's not an album, you see. It turned into an album over here. But it was just the music from the film. Why do they mean meditate? Because uh, it, seems, it seems to be uh, nice, like cleaning your teeth, you know. It does have some sort of end product. Uh, I think Maharishi was a mistake, but his teachings have got some truth in it. What do you mean it was a mistake? We made a mistake. The other people are making a mistake to go see uh, you now? That's up to them. And we saw... What? what We're you human, mean? you know. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm by mistake. Yeah. Like... That's all, you know. We thought there was more to him than there was, you know. But he's human. And for a while we thought he wasn't, you know. I thought he was... Uh... Do you have any other new uh, philosophical leaders? No. No? Me. Are the people still meditating? Yeah. Uh, yeah, now and then. At this moment. <laughs> On Tuesday, May 14th, at 1.30 p.m. at the Americana Hotel in New York City, John and Paul hold another press conference. Now that you, you have this tremendous influence, uh, which you obviously have all over the world, do you have a particular feeling about what you want to do with this power? This Just uh, whatever it is, to try and channel it for good, if we can, you know. That's the only point of doing anything. So we've got this machine, and we'll try and make use of it for good, and not just to have a machine. You know, you've, you've, got, you've got your life, and you're faced with choices in it. You're given choices. And for us, you know, being suddenly rich and famous and in a position to do something. We've got a choice of doing either what most people do, which is just making more and more money and getting more and more rich and more and more famous, or trying to do something which will help, you know. And it sounds a bit sickly, it sounds a bit like charity, but it's obviously the one we've chosen, you know, or, you know, because it's just better. There are some people who, are, who want to do something specially where they need a bit of money See, obviously, like, if we're running a, a thing which involves money, you can't just give all the time, because you have to get something back, or else it just stops, you know, when your money runs out. So that we're, try, we're trying to do it with people that can do something for us in return, like on a swap basis. Since, since you're not diplomats, let me ask you to meddle in American politics as our concluding okay. question. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of candidates. We don't right? know all that we much, don't know about, much it, about it. You know the names. And, no. Uh, you've heard the names. Uh, not really. I mean, we hear the sort of Eisenhower. Kennedys. And, <laughs> and we met a man with a green, called Green, who sells plastic flowers to try and get people to vote for him, which is a good sign of what he is, anyway. But we don't know much of There's doves and olives, isn't there? Doves and olives. <laughs> So, I mean, anything about that, my choice would be a dove, but, I mean, it might be an insane dove. But that's the <laughs> risk you listen to the take. question? No. Oh. Come on. You're not, to, you're not ready to make a commitment? Well, we yeah, sure, go on. Yes, ask something. I mean, would you pick a McCarthy or a Kennedy? A dove. Or a Humphrey or a Nixon or a Rockefeller? A dove? Yeah, you know. On May 15th, John and Paul appeared on American television to announce the formation of Apple. Paul and John appear on The Tonight Show. And then they went on the Johnny Carson show, but Johnny Carson wasn't there. It was Joe DiMaggio, I think, was the the guy. Joe Garagiola? That's right. Because Johnny was on holiday. 
Did you know that when you were showing up that night? No, I didn't. I thought he was going to meet Johnny. I met Joe. <laughs> you know, it was John. You know, one. Of, I think one of the things John said on that show was like, you know, we'll just spin it like a top and see where it goes. something. How did you get here? Not from England, but from the hotel with all the people out there. Uh, car. Car. Right. How about this uh, new organization, uh, Apple? Oh, yeah. Well, you see, the tax, our accountant came up and said, we've got this amount of money. Do you want to give it to the government or do something with it? So we thought... Which government first? Oh, any old government. Yeah. Oh, any old government. <laughs> But, uh, so we decided to play businessmen for a bit because uh, we've got to run our own affairs now. So we think we got this thing called Apple, which is going to be records, films, and electronics, which all tie up, and to make a sort of an umbrella or something. So as people who want to make films about that <coughs> don't have to go on their knees in an office, mm -hmm. you know, begging for a break. You will so we'll try and do it like that, business well, and pleasure. Idea, that's the idea. We don't know. I mean, we'll find out. We'll find out what happens. That's you what know, we're trying you, to do. If you want to do something, normally you've got to go to big business. You've got to go to them, the big people. You know? Well, you don't even get there and because you can't get through the door because of the colour of your shoes. Or... <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, people are normally, uh, big companies are so big that, like, if you're little and good, it takes you, like, 60 years to make it. And so people miss out on these little good people. Well, it just takes them longer. <laughs> so we're trying to find a few. What do you see in the years ahead uh, for oh, yourselves? Larry, you know, an expanding vista. Apple. You know, we try and set it up and then see where it goes. It's like a top. And we set it going and hope for the best. If you couldn't have done it in music. Uh, so how about you, Paul? You're not breaking a mood, am I? No, huh? No, you're doing great, you know, but, I mean... <laughs> you know, I'm going to be a teacher, but that fell through, luckily. <laughs> I don't know, you know. Teacher. <laughs> why, don't, why don't you read that and see what, 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 what do they actually... Oh, uh, from your local stallion. You know? How about from your local station?
On May 15, 1968, while still in New York, John Lennon and Paul McCartney film another television interview, this time with Larry Kane, the Miami-based disc jockey who had been among the keenest and the most likable of all the Beatles' media supporters since their arrival in the U.S. in February of 64. Here's Larry Kane. In 1968, John Lennon and Paul McCartney joined me in New York to talk about Apple, their innovative concept to help young artists. It was one of their final interviews together. I brought up a touchy subject, drugs. Uh, Paul, about a year and a half ago, there were quotes on the wire about uh, oh, your discussion of LSD and uh, some other things, narcotics. Yes, Larry. Uh, it seemed to me from what I read that you had endorsed it and uh, condemned we it. We were manufacturing it. What's the time? story? No, the, the business went bump. <laughs> <laughs> uh, somebody asked me, uh, some newspaper man came up and he said, uh, have you had LSD? So I thought, well, I'll either be cagey here or I'll be honest. So I said yes. And, of course, the inevitable question. One uh, final question. Uh, in yeah. all the time you've been Beatles, before you were just people from Liverpool, uh, <laughs> it was always a question that somebody asked you, well, when's gonna, the bubble going to burst? Mm. Remember that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the bubble hasn't burst, mm. and it doesn't seem like it's going to burst. It just flew off. But do you ever envision a time of uh, just ceasing being the Beatles and going off on your own, or even working together? Mm -hmm. just we are. We the do Beatles. work on our own anyway now. You never can be anything else we than the Beatles. We are the Beatles, you know, that's what we are. When John came back from New York, he went back to his home in Surrey and continued his work on various sound recordings. He had been composing already a wide variety of audio and visual media. I made. <laughs> 20 or 30 movies, or you know, on just 8 mil stuff, but they're still movies. And many, many hours of tape of different sounds, you know, just not rocking. Just, so, suppose, would call them avant-garde, I suppose. On the evening of Sunday, May 19, 1968, with John's wife Cynthia still on holiday in Italy with her mom, John invited Yoko to his house in Surrey. She came over for a date, as it were. And I had a kind of little studio, which was really just a lot of tape recorders. And I was showing her all my different tape recordings. That's how Yoko met. I'd play, I mean, there was very few people I could play those tapes to, and I played them to it. And then we made two virgins the, the, a few hours later. And all that, and I thought, this is great. And I was going, woo, 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 on the tapes, and she was going, ow, ow. And we did, we made a tape all night. These recordings John and Yoko made will eventually be entered into the LP Unfinished Music Number no. 1, Two Virgins. And we shot the cover ourselves privately, and in the morning we made love as the sun came up. Surprise, surprise. 
The relaxing weeks in India yielded a bumper crop of new compositions from the Beatles. Around the third week of May, the Beatles congregated at Kinfons, George's bungalow in Esher, Surrey, and taped 23 demo recordings using George's Ampex 4-track machine. The mono kind of demo, or there were some of the demos that I'd made right after we came back from India. I had a four-track machine in my house, and uh, John and Paul came over. And so a number of those tracks are from that tape that I had. Most, though not all, ended up on the Beatles' next LP. One, two, three, four. Hey, bungalow Bill, what did you kill? Bungalow Bill, hey, bungalow Bill, what did you kill? Bungalow Bill. John Lennon penned another tune while in India, full of Lennon lyrical insanity. It was intended for the next Beatles album, although it never made it. So right now, we're going to hear the original demo version of What's the New Mary Jane from May 68. What a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party. What a shame Mary Jane, what a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party. She looks as an African queen. She eats in 12 chapatis and cream. She tastes as Mongolian lamb. She coming from Aldebaran. Mary Jane had a pain at the party. 
May 30th, 1968, at Abbey Road Studios in London, the first song was recorded for the next Beatles LP. Thank you. 
satisfied with the May 30th recording of the song Revolution, Lennon and the band, on June 4th, re-recorded the song and added various overdubbed sounds. John also recorded his lead guide vocal and opted for an in-out answer to his lyrical question whether he should participate in destruction as a form of revolution. Well, that means I'm not sure, you know. The engineer on the session was Jeff Emmerich. So I was getting this distorted sound on, on, from, the, the, from that guitar on Revolution, and I, was, uh, I went in from one mic amp down in the mixing console into, an, into another one, and, which I wasn't supposed to do. And John just looked down and said, you know, three months in the army would have done you good. So, oh, God, you know. So, so I, I just sort of kept my cool, and I was just sort of furious, you know. John recorded the vocal lying flat on the floor of Studio 3. Brian Gibson, technical engineer on the session, remembers it clearly. John decided he would feel more comfortable on the floor, so I had to rig up a microphone which would be suspended on a boom above his mouth. It struck me as somewhat odd, a little eccentric, but they were always looking for a different sound, something new. It's all in the mind, Groovy. Listen, I'll have one of take. Don't worry. Take your knickers yeah. off and let's go. <laughs> As you said, revolution take yeah. 20. Right. Oh. 
It is that. It was from this point forward that Yoko Ono would attend all of John's recording sessions, even contributing vocals, sounds, and ideas on Beatles sessions. As the Beatles recorded Revolution, and John Lennon remixed the track with Yoko at EMI Studios London, back in Italy, Cynthia, Julian, and Cynthia's mom were enjoying the company of the Bassaninis. On holiday, Cynthia tried to escape her emotional roller coaster marriage to John. Cynthia Lennon elaborates. In Italy, we stayed at the same hotel in Pesaro where we'd been two years earlier. The Bassanini family were as hospitable as ever, and this time the press had no idea that we were there. Despite my anxiety, I tried hard to make the holiday enjoyable for everyone. I played on the beach with Julian and explored the little town with Mum. Whatever lay ahead, I would deal with it when I got home. For more information or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. Hey everyone, Paul and James here to tell you about one of the best music podcasts online today. It's called Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Yeah, as longtime listeners of our show know, Take It Away and its hosts, Ryan Brady and Chris Mercer, are the authority on all things Paul McCartney, Wings, and the Beatles. Their five-star rated podcast walks you through every single Paul McCartney release from 1970 to present day. That's every song on every album, including singles, b-sides, bootlegs, and you will most likely hear songs you've never heard before, which is part of the fun of the show. You'll also hear old favorites from new perspectives, all lovingly placed in the context of McCartney's career and the musical sounds of their era. Yeah, and don't miss the amazing interview with Denny Lane, co-founder of Wings and McCartney songwriting collaborator, as well as a slew of other special guest appearances that give some really cool insight into the music that spans the last 50 years. So if you're a McCartney fan, you've found your new favorite show, because I know I have. Seriously, I never miss an episode and neither should you that's take it away 
the complete Paul McCartney Archive podcast, available for download now wherever you find podcasts. Check it out now. I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally we'll do an all-star We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once, that is true. (laughs) We are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird, see? We weren't even lying.